0: the communicator award of excellence winning podcast coming at you like vince lombardi reminding you that winning a communicator award isn't everything it's the only thing and as the late al davis was fond of saying just win baby i am Ryland grant screenwriter Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant Banjacks and Suicide Jockeys. The other
1: voice in the dark, the man
0: in the box to the right this time is...
1: uh David Avelone, uh film guy, comic book writer, and apparently award-winning podcaster.
0: Award-winning podcaster. Yeah. Uh, uh, First time you... I've
1: ever said that out loud.
0: Yeah, that's nice. Um, We we found out, I don't know, about an hour ago that... um Our uh, politics in comics episode uh, featuring Emily Flake and Lalo uh, Alcaraz was um, it won a communicator award of excellence, um, which is a, uh, you know, I guess a big deal, a prestigious deal. I still don't know what it means yet, but um, but yeah, they're going to send us a nice little, uh, you know, statue and all that fun stuff. So
1: is there a statue really? I uh, didn't know. There, there yeah.
0: Yeah. There's a statue. I, you know, I, I don't know if they sent us one statue or two statues. We may have to negotiate to get you uh, to, well, well, to, to, <laughs> I was, I, I, there I, there I go. Assuming that the statue goes to me, Uh we may have to negotiate for a second statue. Yeah. Um, or or but,
1: we'll just, we'll split custody. I'll get him on the weekends. Yeah. Take him to the fair. I'll be fun. Dad. Yeah. You know,
0: I, I have a friend that runs a metal shop. Why don't we just we'll just cut it down the middle?
1: I would actually love
0: that. That would be kind of
1: funny. I would love to have, love to have half of a. Uh, I contributed one page to the "Love Is Love" anthology that Mark and Draco put together, and I was in the bar, not the ballroom, when it won an Eisner. And I sort of turned around and said, "I am one three hundred seventy fifth of an Eisner winner, and I feel pretty good about it, since I'm nice. one of the, one of the over three hundred people that I'm." And Mark Andreco was like, no, no, man, it's the I claim it. You're you're an Eisner winner. You're a New York Times bestselling author. No one has to know it's only one page. <laughs>
0: well, that's, I mean, you know, it's there.
1: If it's there, it's yeah. there, right? So what yeah. have you got to pimp out before we bring in our lovely guest? Oh,
0: man. Um, yeah, I don't know if I was prepared for that. But uh, I guess the first thing and the biggest thing is that my uh, uh, my Immortal Studios, uh, Wuxia, Kung Fu Epic, Fa Origins, is uh still available right now uh, via kickstarter if you go over to kickstarter and search fashion origins or my name Rana grant you will find that shit. um it is a uh wusha for the uninitiated it is the um, uh, um the, the the uh magical martial uh warrior epic genre uh that includes things like crouching tiger hidden dragon um but it also inspired star wars and john wick and all of these other uh, amazing things that we celebrate now um it's a historical piece um takes place during the boxer rebellion in china uh, right around 1900 and and the warlord era that follows um it's awesome it's great it's it's you know uh, um some of the most fun i've had writing anything so you're gonna love it going over to uh kickstarter and check that out uh what do you got
1: what I got is a week from today, Elvira in Horrorland number one drops. Uh, as previously set up in previous Elvira series, we have discovered that movies create their own little pocket dimensions where the story plays out over and over again for all eternity. And the premise of this series is Elvira finds herself in some very familiar pocket universes and the first one would be uh is a uh let's just say it's about a psycho motel owner uh his shower his problem with his uh showers and his 12 rooms 12 vacancies so that should be a fun issue that drops on wednesday with art by sylvia califano colors by walter Perea. though that issue is very much in black and white uh walter's work in even just the gray tones is very impressive, and of course, letters as always by Taylor Esposito. But now let us bring in our guest for today, Don Walker. Hey, Don. Howdy,
2: howdy. What's going on, fellas?
1: Thanks for congratulations
2: joining. on your award. Thank. Thank
1: you. It's a major award.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, it is the uh, it is the Cable Ace Awards of podcasts. I think. Right. Yeah, we got that going for us. Yeah. <laughs> I kid because I love
2: Uh, Don tell the kids at home a little bit about yourself Uh, I am Don The Don Walker Um, I am the publisher Writer Penciler at all things Dork Empire Inc Um, I created and write and draw the books Agent Wild Reaper Core, And the upcoming Dreadlock the Barbarian Um, I am also one of the four Co-founders of the Sketchy Bug group, which is a nationwide comic collective, uh, comic creator collective, um, comic creators, cosplayers, filmmakers. Um, and our, our whole mission is to create awesome comics and spread the, the love for comics throughout the galaxy. starting with Earth. Mm-hmm. Love mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who are the
1: other co-founders, if I may ask?
2: Uh, Don Schmidt, Jackson Nordgren, and uh, oh gosh um I don't mean well, to I I forget name. another guy <laughs> I, not part of the group anymore okay. um Wait, was his name also Don no not, not Don Wynn Don Wynn came <laughs> in later yeah I thought it <laughs> might
1: be Don Win actually
2: yeah but no Don came in a couple of years in but yeah uh, sure. we're also celebrating our 10th anniversary this year wow. 2022 oh, wow. so Ten impressive. years of awesomeness and teamwork.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. I'm I, I, I'm I'm trying to think of the things that I've done for ten years. You know, oh, I can, I can probably count them oh, on sorry, my head.
2: Sorry, hand. John Ersick was a fourth guy. John Ersick, Sorry. John.
0: Okay. John. Not John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I was worried it was going to be an all dons club. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I was thinking of the things. You know, okay. Well, you know, what, what are the things I've done for ten years? My marriage. Yeah. Um. I Twenty guess years better. for me. I guess I've had my car for 10 years. I don't know that that's a positive thing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Zen is over 10 years. Um, You know, uh, screenwriting is over 10 years. Yeah, I haven't
1: been making comics for eight years. That'll be in, that'll be 2024 will be my eight year, uh, 10 year anniversary making comics. Yeah. Which leads me to my first question. Uh, What, What's the origin story? What, what made you start writing and drawing comics? Uh,
2: Star Wars Episode Four. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw that. I was four years old. Saw it on Drive-In with my dad. Nice. Uh, and uh, my foray into comics was first getting the adaptation from Marvel Comics. Sure. Um, and, of course, Marvel Marvel's uh, Star Wars led to Spider-Man. Which led me to Uncanny X-Men, and Uncanny X-Men when I was like nine is what mm-hmm. made me want to actually draw comics. I just love that book. I love Chris Claremont's writing. He was like my writing coach uh, growing up, if you will. Um, my first published work—I was sixteen. Oh. I did uh, I did a, what was it a, sh- a short ten-page story for an anthology called Profolio which a young man in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who I'm still friends with, uh, was the, the publisher of. And uh, we met through, uh, what was it? What was that, that comic magazine, a uh, newspaper from like the 80s? You guys remember that paper? Uh, you pulled it out. Comics, the, uh, Peter, Davids, Peter David's, I digress, was in there. Mm, I
1: don't remember.
2: Yeah, it, was, it was called Comic Something. It was like a newspaper. It was like before Wizard Magazine, and it was wasn't like a, a comic, comic scene. No, it was like an industry trade uh. Uh, newspaper that you get through the mail. And it was that that classified ad, and I I submitted artwork. A guy liked it, and yeah. 16, Qu- Qu- Recently,
0: his name was also Don.
2: <laughs> so, 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 so. Yeah, I wondered I, I your
1: your Twitter handle made me wonder if Rom Space Knight had been a very important uh
2: comic for you since you're Don Space Knight. I, I am a, a big sci-fi nerd in general, but yeah, Rom was my book. X-Men, Rom, again Star Wars, um I'll I'll the Marvel a Marvel zombie mm-hmm. as a kid. But Rom was I just love Rom. Like that entire just the idea of the story. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. You know, you give your your humanity to to fight a war. You give your literally your, your flesh and blood humanity to fly off into space to fight a war. And then for spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, he comes home from war and his flesh and blood body is gone, destroyed. And okay. he's stuck he's stuck being this, this like robotic cyber cybernetic organism. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I loved yeah. it. Robo-Cop. It
1: all. <laughs> RoboCop before there was RoboCop, right? Exactly. What exactly. if Norrin Rad became RoboCop, basically? And it's a you know, it's a great book. i uh, in the Mantlo verse, I was more of a Micronauts guy than a Rom Space Knight guy. I read like, those too in the toy-related comic books uh, <laughs> universe. Uh,
2: but yeah, I didn't great... get those though. So as a kid, <laughs> my parents wouldn't buy the Micronauts, but they would buy the Star Wars toys. Sure. So figure. The um, I will
1: say this about the micronauts toys: they were beautiful. They were baroque,ly complicated, and those things would fall apart if you looked at them funny. <laughs> like they were such works of steampunk art that literally, if you played with one for five minutes, its arm would just, you know, the rivet holding its arm on would pop out, and you go, know, "Well, now I have a one-armed space glider. Uh, that's cool." You know. Uh but yeah, it was a, it was very imaginative stuff. Um and the Rom
2: the ROM toy came out for like what a year? Yeah. I remember seeing that toy at um like the like the best store, not Best Buy, the yeah. best store from the seventies yeah. or eighties, whatever it was. And it was super expensive. My parents were like, Oh hell no, you're not having that toy. Yeah and uh so I still don't have one. I want one really bad. Uh but the comic was the next best thing. Sure. And, and the comic created a whole mythos that didn't even exist in a toy. And didn't, am I remembering
1: correctly, that Rom existed in the Marvel Universe just like. Uh, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the Micronauts. I remember Nick Fury guest starred in the Micronauts, and I was oh, yeah. very,
2: very, very excited by that. Rom met the X Men. He met the Avengers. And right. we'll bring all those characters. Yeah. It was great. Yeah.
1: That's fun stuff. So that was your that was your introduction to it, and then you've been self-publishing, doing your own thing, going your own way for a long time. Has that been? Was that from the beginning, or was that? No, is that oh, no yeah. So,
2: uh, I, I, so the 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 kid who published the portfolio, I did like three or four books for him over like a three year period. Then it was kind of a dead period where I was, you know. Young man, making making my own like comics, but like just for myself, Mm -hmm. you know, not not showing anybody. By the time I hit eighteen, I was doing samples, trying to actually get work. Mm -hmm. Like everybody else, I wanted to work for Marvel and DC and yada yada yada. But I didn't see anything published again until I was my Mm -hmm. twenties. I almost landed a gig at uh, in the Ultraverse, Marvel's Mm -hmm. Ultraverse. I had a bunch of friends up north. I was up north for a little while. I met a bunch of guys who had a studio, and all those, but all one of those dudes ended up getting work at um, the Ultraverse line when it first launched. The you know, Ultraverse being the, the answer to Image. It's like the writer's version of Image. So I um, almost got a gig with that, uh, but didn't. And then I was around 26, 27, I had a two-issue miniseries published by the Antarctic Press called Creature, which is a creator-owned character of mine mm-hmm. uh, that I wrote and drew. That was a bad situation. <laughs> we could do a show on that That uh, that deal. Um, I don't want to depress anybody. Um, <laughs> but self-publishing since 2015 with Agent Wild Zero, um, my first foray into a into uh, crowdfunding mm-hmm. um, and that book started as a friend of mine wanted to do a comic and we we're going to do a flip book. I'll do half. You do the other half. And I was, I was doing, I was actually working on a Reaper Core book already. It's 2007. I was working on that book and my friend wanted to do this team up book. Years go by, he doesn't do his part, but I had started the agent wild half of the book. Kept going back for, for report agent wild report agent wild. I finally, I say, "Know it, all these pages drawn. I'll just span it to a one shot. Do agent wild his own thing." Mm-hmm. My friend still hasn't done his part. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Years later, so I just put her out. I'm like here it is. There's this this cool character I created, um, loosely based on another character I'd done in the early 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 '90s with my Albuquerque New Mexico publisher guy, mm-hmm. called Wild. But Agent Wild is put it in a blender, added some more spices or whatever, and then blend it all up, create something new mm-hmm. um, and more fun, more and more current at uh, the time. So um, and then uh, I finished Reaper Core, published that as a one shot. Um, and then again, the newest book is Dreadlock the Barbarian. Um what I'd like to do is, so Dork Empire, Inc., my imprint, my if you will, uh, is a shared universe. So Agent Wild is in the the uh, modern day. Reaper Core and Dreadlock are in the future of the same universe. And so my long game goal is all the modern day books I eventually will publish, hopefully, whether I draw them or someone else does, will all be somehow inform the future that I'm already publishing. Cool. So it will all link together eventually <laughs> as I get further along publishing books, you know what I mean? That's well, kind of my deal. So that's what you, I have to do.
0: Your shared universe,
1: if you will. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And and uh, where are you at with that now? Do you have a you have a Kickstarter coming up?
2: I do. So uh May twentieth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Friday, May 20th. I am starting, uh, I am kickstarting a new sketchbook, actually, and it's called The Dawn Sketchbook Number Two, Futures. Mm -hmm. And so it's 24 pages, 20 pages of all new art, and the the sketchbook is basically 20 future characters or books Mm -hmm. you're going to see in Dark Empire, the Dark Empire universe. And so it's all raw pencils, mm-hmm. and all displayed in cover style illustrations. Uh, so it's kind of a sneak preview of what you've got coming up. Exactly, exactly. But so each page is going to be like a cover to mm-hmm. a new book. Mm-hmm. So like you're, you're my page, all, page. Will they eventually all be covers? Depending on how fast I get to those books. Sure. So I'm drawing all the covers. So. I might not like those covers anymore when the book, you know, come along. Sure. It's my job something new, but uh, it's being presented as this would be the cover to the book if I do it right now. But it's all again, it's all pencil art. Um, all the art is available in the Kickstarter campaign, as as a tier. Uh, I'm not, I am not meriting my stuff. I scan all this stuff. So after I scan it, I'm totally, totally fine selling it. Finding new homes. Sure. I have enough stuff in the office now. I don't need I don't need more. <laughs> sure. Sure. You also and have here. a cool special. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say,
1: what's when did you do your last Kickstarter before this upcoming one?
2: Uh, early 2021, though. No. Sorry. Late 2021. I did the Dreadlock the Barbarian uh, Kickstarter. Uh-huh. Um, but, wait. Sorry. Sorry. 2020, mm-hmm. 2021. I was trying to get the book done, but I had a lot of medical problems mm. that kept me from drawing like anything. So I literally finished drawing the book like two months ago. So yep. now we're the inking is almost done on that one. I had to go through three colors. Oof. My first colors um, did ten pages. So the first ten pages of dreadlock. We're actually in an anthology called Danger Arcade, which the Sketchy Bugs did sure. prior to my Dreadlock campaign. So that colorist immediately got work from Image and Marvel.
1: Sure. So
2: I became I became way low on Totem Pole. Sure. Signed a second colorist for the new part of the book. Five months later, got no colors. Had to let him go. So I went back to a, one of my tried and true guys, the Nick Chapuis. Mm-hmm. Out of Germany, he is amazing colorist. He colored Agent Wild uh, Zero and most of one, Agent uh, Rubicon Zero. We her that one too. So, some I've worked with before. He's really good, but he had gone off and done some other things on his own. So I hadn't, hadn't worked him for a while, but he became free, and I was like, "Please help me finish yeah. this book."
1: <laughs> we have we have yeah. a running gag on this podcast. I think it was Dave Acosta said to me once. <clears> uh, <throat> I was complaining about trouble I was having with a colorist and he said, colorists are drummers in the rock band of your comics crew. Once you realize that colorists are drummers, it will all make more sense. To you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I say that with, I have a couple of colorists I work with pretty frequently who are amazing, who are not even a little bit flaky. Exactly. Walter, Walter Perea, who does all the Elvira stuff and Ellie Wright, who does a lot of my other stuff, uh, not even a little, both absolutely dependable people and not even a little flaky, but I didn't just start out with them. <laughs> they, they were not the first people I ever worked with. And uh, and the less said about that, the better. But those two are terrific and do great work in a reasonable amount of time for a reasonable amount of money.
2: Yeah, I have a bunch of guys. Uh, so I have two colorists: Nick Chapuas, uh, Jesse Hegey. Another guy he's in Arizona that I love. And he has a lot of my pinups and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Doesn't do a lot of sequentials, so I can't hire him for those. Uh, so, okay so to have to find someone else. Uh, Tommy Shelton at Texas. He's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some amazing anchors. Oh, my God. Uh, Larry Welch. who has got 30-plus years of, of inking uh, credits. Um, my new guy, Silas Dixon, Mm-hmm. amazing guy out of Florida, um, Jeff Graham out of Canada. He's an amazing writer and anchor, and he's, yeah, he's a real good dude, too. So, I do try and stick with a core of that. Sure. sure. That's why no. some anchors give me different looks also. Sure. So, you know, I, if I want a grittier look, I'll, I'll use someone here. I want more of a marble look, so I'll use this guy over here. And, you know, colors are kind of the same way for me. Like, if I want a certain vibe, I use different colors, but yeah. Sure. No, it's it's good to know what
1: what people are good for. And sometimes, you know, there can be blessings in disguise. I've had projects that I approached artists I loved with, and they were either not available or turned me down. And the person I ended up with was way more stylistically and artistically the right person for the job. Like yeah. I have a I have a habit of defaulting to well let, let me see if Dave Acosta is available <laughs> you know like and uh, like the the World War II uh, anthology thing I did like everyone else I approached Dave Acosta said I don't want to draw tanks uh, which is <laughs> fucking hilarious because G- Dave can draw anything he's an amazing artist <clears throat> I mean he just drew a Dracula in, in Dracula in the Crusades story and I'm like really that was hard that was easier than drawing a tank. That seems not, way more complicated than yeah. drawing tanks.
0: Also, tanks, tanks are awesome, you know? Yeah, I, and I, I tanks are I, awesome. Yeah. Uh,
1: but yeah, I, I, uh, I found uh, Sylvia Califano, who was drawing Starfleet technology over at IDW, and I said, I bet someone who's over there drawing Klingon warships is not going to be put off by drawing a tank. Right. <laughs> you know? And someone like, who, specifically can't get it wrong. You know what I mean? Like, there's something to be said for, like, therapy you draw, like, Jack Kirby is probably my favorite all-time comic artist. Some of his World War II stuff is very like, why are the Germans why do they have laser guns? <laughs> like, why are they holding guns that look like something a scroll might have? And it's just because Jack didn't feel like drawing a Schmeiser that day. Right. He drew the coolest looking gun he could and put it in the hands of a German wearing a somewhat fanciful uniform. And it's like, you know, but then you get the Russ Heaths of the world where every friggin' bolt is just dead on. In place. Yeah, Yeah. is just perfect and you can't get over the, the photorealist perfection of it.
2: But my thing but, is kids, kids and horses.
1: Yeah. Is don't, I don't that about horses, man? I can't draw anything. So drawing a horse is no
2: more difficult to me than drawing you know a cardboard box. So, but I will I will often I don't want to write my own stuff. I will often write things into a script I don't want to draw. Just to get better at drawing those things. Sure. Like a lot of a lot of I've, I've heard a lot of writers tell or ask artists, "What do you like drawing?" Mm-hmm. And that's okay to ask them that. But I don't agree with tailoring stories to an artist likes and dislikes. Yeah. Write good stories. It's yeah. artists' job to draw those things that are in the story. Yeah. You can learn how to draw horses and kids, like you know, and, and tanks. You can learn how to draw tanks. It's not that hard. Yeah, Reference. Yeah, no, it's, of course. And on the internet for free. Of course. I mean, I, you know,
1: I, think it, I do think it behooves you a little bit to at least be aware of what you're asking. Uh, you know, every time, you know, I wrote a comic that Dave Acosta drew that was set in a comic book convention, and I'm like, There's, guess there, there are going to be a lot of people in these panels, man. Like, I can't – and I would even say it's like panel, you know, page whatever panel one – I'm afraid here we have to see the whole room, and I'm sorry. <laughs> the rest of the page can be close-ups with no backgrounds. I don't care, but I need to see the hall and the cosplayers and the people. Exactly. No one's going to know we're at a comic book convention. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and I think, I think artists understand that it's the thing that it has most in common with filmmaking. In a way, every writer says that dumb thing about it's an unlimited budget. It's like no, it's really not an unlimited budget. Uh, As an example, right now, Sylvia is drawing Elvira in Horrorland number two, Mm -hmm. and I wanted her to, which takes place during the events of The Shining, and I said, I know this is a lot to ask, but I really want every panel to be that zero-point perspective Kubrick framing, and she's like... It's taking her some time because she's drawing all of those incredible sets yeah. from The Shining in yeah. great detail and in one-point perspective so every <laughs> panel looks like a Stanley Kubrick frame. Yeah, and I appreciate that I have asked her to do something. I was like, I know this is – having to draw those sets over and over again to really sell it is, is a lot. And the next issue is Alien, and I'm already yeah. ap- apologizing to her for the Nostromo interiors. Yeah. So it's another – the last, the, the last page is the Nostromo, and I said, you know what? We want to wrap this issue up. When you're drawing the airlock, do what Ridley Scott did and use as much smoke as possible to obscure the set. You <laughs> <It, it, it, laughs> don't have to draw all that detail in the airlock. Just fill it with smoke. I want to see the main characters, and we'll be fine.
0: It, it is a very good point. I mean, you are you're not spending money. But you are spending an artist's time and sanity and patience and the risks and goodwill things. for you and, and all of these yeah. things, which are very important and finite and perhaps more valuable than uh, a dollar or a million yeah. or 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 tens of millions. That's an interesting thing. I mean, I've shared this story uh, on the podcast before, but um, uh, Stephen Prince, he was doing um, uh, one of his Monster Matador spinoffs, and he had this scene. Um, where he needed like a thousand or thousands of these, like, bu- flying bug creatures to attack a town. Right. Um, and so he's writing the scene and he starts off by apologizing. I'm sorry, but we, we, we need to do this for the scene. <laughs> I know it sucks. I figured out how to do it easily because Steve used to draw monster matador himself. He's now okay. sort of stepped back and is just writing it and has another artist taking care of it. But he's like, this is how I would do it. This is how I would easily reproduce a thousand bugs and get them into this thing. And Mm -hmm. so, so I thought that was an amazing lesson. It's an amazing fix. If you were going to ask an artist to do it, the least you can do is present him and her with a way to make it much easier. (laughs) Oh yeah. To, to, to execute. So um, in
1: one of the, in one of the con scenes that required an audience, I said, I just need five people in the first row. And then everyone else can be a shadow. Yeah. Everyone else can fall off into darkness, be a Mm shape, be a silhouette. The light, the the circle of light at the front of the theater is only going to be cast on the four people in the front row. Mm. The rest of the auditorium can be a shape and it's yeah. fine. And you, yeah, and you you try it. And again, it comes, you know, I come from years of making low budget movies and it's the same thing where I play like, Light the four extras in the first row, and then let's <laughs> throw the crew in the seats behind them and not light them so we don't have to put them in costume. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, cutout spectrum. it's, it's um, the kind of thing you think about. It. My favorite budget thing is making a low budget movie that took place in a high school, and the writer director was not the kind of person that thought about budget. A high school was already a very expensive location, yeah, exactly. He had a, a three eighths of a page scene that took place in the school auditorium at an assembly to get across one piece of exposition and i was like so a hundred teenagers minimum we got to get them out before lunch to deliver these two lines of dialogue i said can this be a pa announcement in a hallway with 10 extras and the director went oh yeah that works fine i'm like Okay, good. Because <laughs> <laughs> that assembly scene was giving me nightmares that we were ever going to try yeah. and do that uh, and feed those people and get them into costumes and get them, you know. Exactly. It's, just, it's just figuring out the... And again, if it was a crucial storytelling thing, if someone was being humiliated in front of their entire class, I totally get it and we would have had to make that work. But it was literally the principal had to convey a piece of information to the entire student body. And then one guy made a snide remark to another guy. And I'm like, that doesn't, that does not sell me on. I need a hundred extras. I'm not Not entirely too expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I don't buy that. I need a hundred people for that. So, you know, it's the same, it's basically the same thing. What's important. What's not important.
2: Yeah. And as far as speaking from a, from an artist standpoint too, when the writer understands that when you, when you go, when you're in your script, you're like, Hey, sorry, but I need this. Goes a long way for us. Like, okay, he, he they get it. So take me a while. So, you know, they understand that it, it's a lot easier to to dive into those kind of pages, knowing that you understand how hard it is for us to do those. <laughs> you know, and, why, and I
1: know Ryland does this too. You do all of the rec- You do all the photo research you possibly can. <clears throat> you know, one of my favorite Hollywood anecdotes about the gap between writing and making is uh, Adrian Lyon, who I'm not a big fan of, when they were producing uh, Jacob's Ladder. I think the screenwriter, Rubin? I can't remember his name. Yeah, Bruce Joel Rubin. Bruce Joel Rubin had a a thing where, and then the wall gives way to the spinning void of the universe. And in a script meeting, he turned to Bruce and he said, how many extra carpenters am I going to need to bring on for the spinning void of the universe just out of curiosity like what the hell do you think that is you wrote you can write that in a script great but what exactly am i filming <laughs> with right. my camera here on earth for the spinning void of the universe now in that's a very visually Im- imaginative movie as adrian line goes his answer to that problem is terrible. He had blood dripping off the walls. It's the most yawn-inducing yeah. choice in the movie, which kind of spoils the anecdote. Uh if I if Bruce Gerald Rubin knew anything about movies, he would have said animation man a, a matte painting you know like build a miniature what the hell's wrong with you you don't yeah. you know this isn't a, the grips aren't going to be able to do this i get it <laughs> you know like there, 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 there is some
0: balance in that i mean you talk yeah. about it from from a filmmaking perspective and um and I, you know I, i've had it both ways i mean there's the your your example about the the auditorium is a great one you know that, that that's just simple fucking logic right um but you know i mean i've dealt with crabby old directors that you know they just they don't want to shoot anything challenging right <laughs> you know and and we're in this time you know i mean if you uh like turn on euphoria on hbo and watch how many mini scenes little cuts uh, you know how they move through time and space and all of these things that is the language of filmmaking right now you know mm-hmm. um and so you bring something like that to a director and he's like eh, i don't want to shoot all this shit yeah. <laughs> you know i'm saying like, give me a you know, make, uh, you know, give me 10 scenes. yeah, <laughs> Let's, yeah Five pages of dialogue each, Uh, uh you know, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll come in. We don't have to move. We don't you have ever, to, you, ever, it, it, you still need to, I, I mean, it's this balance, right? It's like, yeah. it's making, making stuff so hard that like, it's not, it's not doable is one thing, but like we are in this in the yeah. comic business and we are in the, the, the film business to, to push the envelope, to challenge, to, uh, to tell, you know, uh, stories in a way that they haven't been told before or to take people, you know, into new places and give them new wrinkles constantly. I mean, that was that was the reason I got into comics is right. because because I had shackles on me the entire, you know, for the 12 years I was writing, you know, uh, film before I, I, I ever got into comics. I feel like I had chains on me the entire time, you know, oh, you can't do that and you can't do that. And this is too much and that's too little. And there is this thing where there's there's no, you no, no budget in, in, in comics and there's a limit to it, but it's, it's also what makes this amazing. It's mm-hmm. also the reason to do this sure. is okay. We'll tell the story out of order and use experimental elements and, and, and just push yep. the envelope every way imaginable. And that's, what's really exciting. I mean, when I, when I pick up a book and it feels like a fucking straight line, I'm, I'm not grabbing yeah. a shoe. But yeah. If, yeah. I, if I pick up a book and it has twisted me and turned me and challenged me, and I thought it was going this way and it went that way. And all of those things like that's, that's what we have the power to do with this, this thing, you know, to, to sort of take a reader on a roller coaster ride. Yeah. And if you're not doing that, you're doing something wrong.
2: There's a, there's... I've, I've made some films too. And I, I enjoyed the hard parts. Sure. Like sure. the, I've, I, I've made one feature that I produced, wrote and directed and um, low budget, obviously. And the most fun part for me directing is, is, is well, working with actors is great. But the problem solving. Oh, yeah. I love the problem solving. Absolutely. Every day is a problem. Every day. Yeah. And so it's so more like if you have all the money in the world I, I would imagine. I don't know. I've never done a million plus dollar movie, but like it might be a little boring. Mm-hmm. When you have restrictions, you get creative.
0: Yeah.
2: And that's yeah, so much and fun. Un-
1: and unrestricted movies are usually weak. Uh, you know from a storytelling perspective a friend of mine worked on Hook and he said the script was trash and everybody knew it and they showed up every day and literally every member of the cast and crew had to be at call time in costume because Spielberg would go today I think we'll do a thing where you know and the movie's kind of a muddled <laughs> mess I know that generationally, if you were eight when you saw it, it's the greatest movie ever made. But if you were a reasoning adult, it is not a well-made movie. No, exactly. Whereas Raiders of the Lost Ark he made after 1941 was a giant failure. And he had to prove, no, I can get this thing in the can for X amount of dollars. I'm never going to go over. I'm never going to have a long day. I'm going to just knock this thing out and it's going to be great. And it's sort of, people kind of forget that he was, his career was over for a minute. Before Raiders of the Lost Ark, George Lucas basically rescued him from never working again. After yeah, fiasco. But <clears throat> in such an institution now, everybody thinks it's been smooth sailing for him all along, and that's you know that's simply not true. There's a there's a book by Akira Kurosawa called something like an autobiography. He has a good sense of humor in his way, and. Oh, yeah. The whole book is his childhood up until he makes his first film and then it ends. And then there's an appendix where he says, I know you didn't buy my book to read any of that. I'm a filmmaker and you want to learn about filmmaking. So here's six pages and I'm going to tell you everything that you need to know about filmmaking. (laughs) And here's the funny thing. I have quoted from that six pages to collaborators probably more than any other thing in the world. And one of the things in that section that he says that I have always remembered, by the way, and this, you know, this may be partially also because of how the Japanese film industry works. He makes no differential between writer and director. He assumes that as a director, you're writing the script. Like that's not a, why would you, you know, why would you not be involved in that? That's crazy. But at one point he says, write the script with somebody and make sure you have at least one person in the room who has no idea how hard it is to make a movie. He said, because you will back away. I can't remember if he gives this example, but this is always the one I think of. He's like, someone who has been involved in physical production will not write a crowd scene on the docks in the rain at night. They will think about how fucking miserable <laughs> that's gonna be when that day comes. And they will go, Could this be in a warehouse during the day with maybe 30 people? You know, like he's like, You will find yourself backing away from crazy nonsense that's very difficult to film. He's like, But if you have someone in the room who's never made a movie, they're gonna say, So we're on the mountaintop and the house catches fire and then an airplane and you go, Well, yeah, that's more exciting than my interior warehouse scene. Yeah,
0: what comes to mind when we're we're having this conversation is is Paul Thomas Anderson. You look at Boogie Nights, which is maybe my second favorite movie of all time, Mm -hmm. Um, and it is so out there and fucking bonkers. You talk about swinging for the fences. I mean, it's you know, it's yeah, what three plus hours long and you know, eight million characters and a hundred thousand cuts and uh, and um, you know, he was twenty three when he made that. And I think that, I think that if he was 30, he never, or, or if he has a couple more films under his belt, he never in a million years aims that high. He never does something that crazy. Yeah. Um, but he was, he did, you know, he did grow up in, he did grow up in the film business. His father was involved in the film business and, and you know was kind of iconic and legend. So, so he knew enough. Um, yeah. And he knew that he knew he had to prepare people for it. He knew he had to, Um, I mean, I remember there's this, there's this iconic shot. It's like a three minute long tracking shot. Uh, There's a a huge party going on at a house and the camera starts in the backyard and snakes through the backyard and catches this conversation. And and, and then this conversation, and then it goes into the pool (laughs) and goes Mm -hmm. all the way through the pool. And then it comes up out of the pool and into the house and tracks all the way through the house and picks this up and that up. And it goes down the hallway. It's crazy. it's, it's an amazing fucking shot. And it's what you're talking about, Avalone, where literally everyone who looked at it said, well, you can't do that. You know, uh, uh, you know, um, you got to break it up. You know, this is, uh, you know, this is five different things. You can't do this in one shot. Um, and he was adamant about it. And he was so adamant about it. And, and, and he started to see the writing on the wall that what was going to happen was they were going to be like, oh, yeah, OK, you can do your shot. And then it was going to come time to shoot it. And um, and, you know, a producer was going to step in and be like, oh, well, we're kind of we're short on time. So we got to break this up. You know, we got to. And um, and so he um, he did a couple of things. He, he goes into the script and and, you know, you're you're reading through this thing and it's cruising along and it's dialogue and it's exposition. And, and, and you're and then it grinds to a fucking halt. And there is a in bold type uh, uh, warning that says, hey, this is what we're doing. This is going to be a three minute long tracking shot. I'm not going to cut. You're not going to convince me. I'm going to shoot this in a way where it's going to be impossible to cut or cut away or edit or anything. If, If you don't like this, do not fund this movie. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, 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 and I think he went so far as to in his director's contract, get it in writing that they would allow him to do this shot and this thing and this thing and this thing. And he was that adamant about it because he had this vision because he had this thing he wanted to pull off and it was crazy and everybody thought he was nuts. Um, but you watch that film and it's a fucking masterpiece. And that shot is a fucking masterpiece. And they, they teach that shot in film schools now and, um, and, uh, you know, it's, and it's amazing to see a 23 year old punk kid who like he would step on set and like the new, you know, the new actor who just stepped on, like thought he was the PA because he's a 23 year old, you know, a uh, uh, kid who, who's going to give him direction. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's amazing to see him do that. Now, if you're Martin Scorsese, you know, and you've made, you know, 10, 12, 15 brilliant films, then you can do the Copacabana shot and, and Goodfellas right. and nobody have had a fucking eyelash. Um, uh, but if you're 23 year old, Paul Thomas Anderson, I mean, you have yeah. to, um, you have to figure out how to, how do you trick people into letting you do it or, 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 or legally bind people into sure. allowing you to do it. And there was still an argument on set about it, but. Sure.
1: Of course, the nightmare scenario in our business is the 23 year olds who believe that they can pull that shot off and they're not Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. Sure. And, and they make us all miserable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying to do that, you know, the number of people who think they're geniuses versus the actual number of geniuses you encounter uh, is a is a whole different is a whole different ball game, and and I've been on those sets too, uh, and that's that is a painful thing to experience. Yeah. But when you're with someone, you know, whatever age they are, I mean, look at Orson Welles, who who has the vision and who really does know what they're doing, it shines out, and you know, and their collaborators step up. <laughs> we
0: have had this argument a number of times on the show. Don the Dragon Wilson is in fact a genius, and the sooner that you uh, that you admit that and embrace, oh, him, I've,
1: I've always said Don our was. relationship will be. But I, I've always said Don was a genius. <laughs> I I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed working with him very much back in the day. Yeah, back at Roger Corman Studios. But I, you know, to get us back to comics, I wanted to say, you know, how are you finding the Kickstarter world
2: post pandemic, Don? Have you have you are you, is this, this is is my first, first campaign, this is my first campaign, I guess, post pandemic, even though it's still around. It's mm. just not as bad. Yeah. I, I'm still living I'm I'm very much uh, immune compromised. So mm. I still wear a mask everywhere. I still don't go out that much. Smart. But um I mean what was funny is during the pandemic, money was being thrown at everything. Like everything was just getting way overfunded more than normal. Um even my dreadlock campaign it was like four thousand dollar campaign. We did like three hundred dollars shot at eight grand. Yeah. Nice. All right. Awesome. Um right now it's looking a little iffy because of um I think everybody having less money. Your food going up, gas going up, uh Projects are getting funded still, but not to the that, that ginormous extent, unless sure. you're a, a household name already. Sure. Um so well, the I mean, people yeah, during
1: that you did have during the pandemic, you know, people who had a certain amount of uh, expendable income, disposable income set aside for comics, they literally had nowhere to spend it. Exactly. You know. Or
2: or that money you would spend on coffee or going out to eat or going or, to the theater, yeah. going to movies, they are spending money on comics on, on another stuff on Kickstarter. So yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. But now it's, it's, definitely, I wouldn't call it a bubble that's burst, but it's definitely tempered now back to more realistic numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, my campaign is like $2,000. So sketchbook, I don't have a whole lot of crazy rewards, so I don't need a whole lot of money. Um, wow. So, I think I have a, a decent enough fan base where I'll get that mm-hmm. and probably fairly quickly. But, like, yeah, if it does take a little while longer to get, I wouldn't be surprised because of the situation in Ukraine and gas and yada yada. Sure. Uh, but I think we'll be all right. I'm not worried so much as I am eagerly optimistic. <laughs> sure. And you've been, in spite of all that, you've been back to
1: cons a little bit too, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I saw you
2: at uh I saw you
1: at LA Comic-Con? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, we were across from each other, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's I right. Love I love that show.
2: That might have been the first time we met in person. I can't remember. I've seen you before, but I don't think we talked ever yeah. at any other show until yeah. that one, yeah. And um that was a lot of fun. That's a good row. We had a good row. A good row of people. We had a, a great of row of
1: people. I had I had you across from me with uh Chuck, Chuck Patton. Patton. Chuck and I, I had Ray behind me. Like that was a that was a nice, <laughs> that was a nice, right? nice group. I'm trying to think who was next to you. There was also someone you had Chuck, Chuck on one, one side. I can't remember yeah. who was on the other side. But anyway, it was a it was yeah. a it was a good show. And and are have you been doing well at shows and signings and things like that? How's that been going for you?
2: Yeah, it's been it's been good. Um I've done like three shows? Mm-hmm. Um free comic book day was, was last weekend. That was really good. Uh-huh. where did uh, you do that? Uh, Were you at the, the comic bug in Manhattan Beach, California? Jim mm-hmm. Goku store in Madden Beach. I love that shop. You've been, you been there? I have a, a Matton Beach shop. I need to go visit it at some point. That, that shop's like a unicorn, dude. It's like the the independent section is mm-hmm. as bigger, bigger. And the Marvel and DC section, and DC section combined. That's and great. In, the, in the next room over, they have another shop called uh, the Game Hub, the game mm-hmm. store. But then they're kind of connected through a doorway. Uh, sure. And in that section, they have a back wall that features all local comic creators. That's great. And most of those creators are sketchy bugs on this That's giant great. wall. So it's pretty sweet. They, they, they do a great job of supporting. Independent creators, as well as the names, yeah. but like someone like me gets just as much love from them as either of you or any of the Marvel DC people that are local. You know what I mean? It's really cool. So yeah, I give uh, June and them all the credit in the world for
1: holding yeah, it down.
2: They're also they're also the the um, headquarters, if you will, for the sketchy bugs. Um, Pre COVID, we would meet. At the comic bug as a group, uh every Wednesday from like five to like nine thirty. We nice. just hang out, uh talk comics and pop culture and sometimes work it wasn't packed so packed we worked too. So mm-hmm. we're looking forward to those meetings again, but again, COVID, I don't think it'll happen sure. anytime soon. But hopefully next year or so we'll get back to those in person meetings. Sure. So they're a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that, that thing about working in public, uh, you know, I know it's pretty common for artists to do it. I read recently, <clears throat> pretty recently that Harlan Ellison once wrote a short story in the window at Macy's, like just for a thing, <laughs> came in for a day and like sat there for eight hours and wrote one short story in the front window at Macy's. And it is my goal to do that, to write an a, you know. comic book, to show up at, you know, whenever they open, 10 a.m., And by the time they close to have written a 20 page comic book, you know, and you do it, you have a big screen so that anyone in the shop can see what you're writing and what you're doing. But that's, that's my dream. I've talked to Ryan Leibowitz about it at, uh, he doesn't really have a physical space that might work for that, uh, but we might work it out. And Andy Legal at, uh, at uh, brave new world in uh, Valencia or not Valencia. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of Valencia new hall. But uh but yeah, I <laughs> always thought that would be a hilarious dumbass pl- publicity stunt for me to do sit and write a comic book in a shop in front of, you know, the people coming and going on a Wednesday. I think that
2: would be hilarious. Right? Last year I saw I saw a guy at Starbucks near my house. There's a Starbucks up the street from my house. It's one of those little ones with a drive-in mm-hmm. and it outdoor seating, right? No indoor seating. So there's this dude with a a PC, a tower PC, and a screen and his and his like wireless keyboard, sitting outside in their little seating area writing. I'm like, I'm like, bro, we got a PC, not a laptop, mind you, a full-on PC with a external battery.
1: That's hilarious.
2: I'm like, you're trying too hard. Yeah. <laughs> you're trying Too it's, hard, man. let go home. There's this great
1: piece of technology that is called the notebook. I'm a big fan to me. And it's interesting. Part of my process, it's less so with comic books, but with movie scripts almost entirely. I was a big fan uh, of writing the entire thing longhand because then the, you can't get, there's never a first draft on your hard drive. De facto, <laughs> typing up those pages, you change things. You can't have you're like you're a writer. You can't just type what you handwrote without improving it. So the first thing typed would always be bare minimum a second draft. You okay. know? It sort of forces you to write the second draft and not go like I got this thing out of my brain. It's done. You start <laughs> handing it to people because uh, that way can be bad.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I can't That's keep opposite. up. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: No, I was on the exact opposite. So with comic scripts, I will do a not so much long form, but I have a so I have a deal where I'll put a piece of paper and I'll um number of pages mm-hmm. on a sheet. So on a sheet you'll have on the left hand side, page or on right hand side, page one, because right. page one's on the right hand side. Page right. two, three, four, where it's supposed to go in the book. I'll write down like two sentence blurbs. Yep. Page one, blah, page two, I'll, I'll work that whole idea out until I have all my pacing and page turns, and I've got to figure it figured out. Let's go full on writing on the PC. For yeah. screenplays, though, I go straight to the PC and just hammer away. Mm. I might do like a, a scene breakdown still on like a sheet of paper. I'll squiggle it out on like lined paper or whatever, but like, I don't do any full on dialogue for screenplays. Yeah. On sure. Paper. I do all that on the, on the PC. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I'm more like an
1: outliner in notebook form. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, again, comic book scripts with the, with the deadlines. I, I don't have time to be writing five, five drafts of those. <laughs> I'm, outline first draft. It goes to the artist. And then the second draft is the dialogue passed after the artist is done. Exactly.
0: Yeah, I, I can't possibly keep up with like the chaotic flow of ideas, uh, long form. Um, it's, uh, you know, open up a blank Word document and just mm-hmm. start in, you know, um, that, that, that's the only way. And I, you know, I, I think I'm opposite where it's like, I, um, I always have, I always know where I'm going. I know where I'm going to, I know where I'm starting. I know where I'm going to end up. Mm-hmm. I usually have, two big punch in the face twists, you know, uh, in the, you know, in the, um, in the comic script somewhere. And, um, so really it's about, I will go and I will walk. I will pace in my backyard or whatever. I mean, I'm I'm lucky that I have a front and a backyard in Los Angeles. Um, and I will find my fence posts. Okay. Well, I know Mm -hmm. I'm, I know I'm writing to hear, and I know that in the middle, of this is going to happen. And then I just sit down, and I and 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 really, what helps me more than anything is getting people talking. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. and yeah. if there's if there's narration, getting the narration going, and, and letting the characters tell me where they're where they're going, and then um, you know, and then the specifics of the plot kind of come out. You know, I uh, um, you know, for me to do like this happens on page two, and this happens on page three, and all that. I mean, I know a lot of people, and most people, in fact, even do that. Um, I I I've done it before. Um, it, it feels like, like a hundred pound weight I'm carrying through me trying to write Mm. the thing. So I, there are times where being so kind of improvisational and free with it become problematic. You know, I'll write myself into a corner and then I need to step back and be like, okay, what happens on page eight? What happens on page nine? That sort of thing. Um, but I'd really rather just kind of get in there and feel my way through it. Um, yeah.
1: Sometimes sometimes definitely the dialogue is necessary for me to know what the story is going to turn out to be. But I will say a lot of times I try to save time and not outline and not do this happens page one, this happens page two. And that nine times out of ten, that has bitten me in the ass. Where I'm (laughs) like, and where it bites me in the ass more actually than in individual issues is in series arcs. Yeah. I have a great relationship with dynamite and the good news, bad news is that they will buy my pitches when it's one sentence per issue. Yeah. But then (laughs) I get to that one sentence I wrote for issue three and I'm like, how was, how the hell was that going to take 20 pages to happen? Jesus, that's a three page sequence tops. What the hell, man? What were you thinking? Uh, So then you have to spin the wheels a little bit. yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, Here's the thing. I mean, I broke in Hollywood. Um, It was a script that I wrote in five days and um, it started with a scene. I had a very clear idea for the inciting incident, the first maybe five pages of the script. Um, And then I just, you know, and, um, and uh, I had an opportunity to submit to the Sundance lab and they needed a a script. And um, so I sat down and in five days I, figured out where the characters ended up after that scene took place (laughs) and um and um you know almost you know almost died doing it you know I actually I went to the hospital for like chest pains and I had my first panic attack and uh it was crazy and so I never went that crazy before but um but you know that that was where I was coming from and it was this like incredible euphoric creative burst you know and you know caffeine and sugar fueled and it was awesome um okay, so cut to 16 years later uh, of, of working, you know, in the film business and in the studio system and with producers and execs that you have to keep in the loop fucking constantly. That's, and and everything is micromanaged and you talk about what happens on this page and this page and this page and submitting full outlines and revising and, uh, and, and taking apart and putting back together. Um, so beaten into the ground from having to do that, that, if I'm going to do my own comic, (laughs) Mm -hmm. fuck all that shit, you know, I'm I'm letting it rip all that said, okay, well, we'll do a couple of successful indie comics. And then, uh, you know, and then, and then, you know, some people at some bigger publishers start to look at you and, and now it's like, okay, well, you know, uh, give us the 20 page outline. (laughs) Um, So I'm back to where I started. Uh, so I'm going to have to maybe find another medium where I can freewheel again.
1: It is tricky. It's like some people, uh, and I'm kind of, I'm glad we're talking about technique because I think that's always a fun thing to show, talk about. Yeah, yeah. Show. But, you know, some people swear by, I feel like Chakin swears by the, uh, the index card thing. And I've only done the index card thing where it's very rare for me that there are scenes that exist outside of the continuity of story. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's usually such a, every time I've used index cards, I'm like, why do I need these things? This only happens in this order. There's no way this order of scenes changes, but every once in a while I've worked on something that's way more like the last thing I did, the, the death of Elvira comic, which was largely based on her life experiences was one where I was like, even though they happened in chronological order it mattered who was telling what part of her story. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the incidents of her life on cards, and when like, okay, let me make sure I've got all these in the round. It was useful for that, and also useful for like looking at the card and going, "You really think you can get through that card in one page, or is that going to be a three-page card?"
0: Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing: is like the cards are they're puzzle pieces, right? And yeah. like and, yeah. and 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 you know, here's the thing: is like generally a twenty-two page comic uh, issue is not that complicated a puzzle, uh-uh. you know, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're, I, I, my daughter loves puzzles, you know, and, and the puzzle she did when she was three, you know, we didn't need to arrange the pieces and find the edge pieces and put those together first. Right. And we didn't have right. to do any thing. It's pretty fucking clear. It's like, here's, you know, here's a, a fucking SpongeBob and there right. are 10, right. there are 10 pieces. We know where his feet go. Right. right. Um, so, so I, I mean, I feel like, and in, in then also it's like the, I mean, if you're doing, you're doing a, a 10, a 10 issue arc, it's almost like each one of those issues is its own yeah. uh, uh, note card, you know, uh, yeah. puzzle piece, that sort of thing. Um, where I use note cards a lot is when I'm doing a, you know, if I'm doing a very complicated uh, film script, you know, it's a 120 page document with a lot of characters, boogie nights, you absolutely need note cards yeah, <laughs> no, of course. You need to be able to this, that, the other thing. And then the other thing, is you know a lot of my film and TV stuff we've talked about this, but I write with partner, right? And uh, if you need to keep two people uh, sure. or more people on the same page, note cards work very well because, um, like you, I can keep it all up here, right? Uh, but but if I have to if I have to keep my partner, you know, uh, in the mix on it, if I have to keep an exec in the mix on it, I've to keep right. a producer in the mix on it, uh, it. It it can really help to um, to do that. Um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like it's almost like you, you got to be doing weaving to need note cards. You have to have yeah. three, three stories that are intertwined. Yeah, exactly.
1: That's, that's most, of the, most of the comics I write yeah. are one character whose perspective we never leave. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of first person storytelling. Yeah. And it's some. this is a total aside, but it's something I've noticed as a writer. A lot of times the cutaway scene to the villain is bad and unnecessary. And it's like someone standing around making cliche dialogue. And it seems to me that it's really, those cutaway to the villain scenes are there because you didn't want to do a time jump with the characters. Because while you're on the, and I'm using an example of a great movie, but while you're on the Death Star, you don't need to cover the time between jumping into hyperspace and them all relaxing in the living room. Mm -hmm. You don't need to do a slow (laughs) dissolve from <laughs> han solo from hyperspace fading out to luke you know playing with the lightsaber now let's go see what darth vader and peter cushing are up to for 5 minutes meanwhile those are actually pretty hard. good no yeah. but those those scenes are actually pretty good yeah. but they're usually not yeah. <laughs> but i mean they're usually you know subpar donald pleasant stroking the cat and saying this organization does not mm-hmm. tolerate failure you know like there's a, just a lot of bad writing in those scenes and they're not necessary for anything other than I want to do a time jump with the main characters and I'm too scared to just fucking do a time jump with the main characters Mm -hmm. um and I I, I've told this before but you know Dave Acosta really helped me so much as a comic book writer by saying you don't use any captions use captions man comic books they're comic books, they're not movies, <laughs> they're not radio shows. You don't have to explain everything visually. You can just say, And then I went to the grocery store. You don't have to like make me draw someone drive into a grocery store. And I think there's there, that's a big thing. I actually, in the latest Elvira, I have thought balloons, yeah. and I'm very happy about bringing back the thought <laughs> to modern comic books. I feel like I can get away with it in a comedy book in a way that if I was writing a serious superhero book, the editor would throw me out of the room. Yeah. Think, in this panel, I think Cyclops should be thinking for uh, you know, 25 words
2: because uh, nobody does that anymore. You know? I've only done a card thing once for uh, a film script, but it's because I knew I was pitching to someone, just a producer, who expected like a massive amount of detail yeah. in the pitch. So I I didn't find that too fun doing the card thing. Um, For comics, my plotting kind of reminds you of the card thing. but Even that, I keep pretty loose, Mm -hmm. especially when I'm writing and drawing my own books, which is most of my work. Um, Even my page-by-page sentences are pretty loose. Sure. I I just massage it until I know what the beginning, middle, and end is, and I start drawing a book. Sure. I, for mm-hmm. my own stuff, I don't write full scripts for my own stuff. Sure. I'm drawing it. So, and I know things will change. Yeah. So that, the ideas I have from page one to 24 or whatever, when I start drawing, I'm having have new ideas. Right. And just drawing certain scenes bring up new ideas. And then your brain, you know, starts going different directions. And before you know it, that second art changes a little bit, goes a different way. And then you just redraw some. Draw differently or add new characters to story, or the characters start talking for themselves. And you're like, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. And you go over here. Um, I have never worked for the studio system, obviously. So I've never had those kind of shackles to work with. Sure. So far, it's all me doing whatever the hell I want to do. I'm yeah. paying for it. So, <laughs> sure. No,
1: and you don't even have the shackle of how many pages. I mean, you're shooting for 24 because you can, but you don't well, have I, the I you have twenty, I pages do that though, and that's all you've got, and we're not giving you more than twenty pages, you know. Well, see,
2: self publish though, I tried to do twenty-four pages max for a couple of reasons. One, I know that's going to cost me to, to publish, right. Um, two, it's that whole idea of you know killing your babies, yep. like keep it simple, keep it down to the the good story points. If you can't do it in twenty-four pages. You either have too many ideas to work with, right, or your story's not not good, right? Like you know, like like the Snyder Cut. for crying out loud, right? I mean, oh, it's four hours. Oh, is it better than Josh Whedon's Sure, But it's four hours long. Right. That's ridiculous. If right. you have to do a four-hour movie to make it good, it's not a good movie, right? Yeah, no so comments. It always cracks. Why want to do a, a three hundred-page or three hundred-issue omnibus? Their first project, I'm like, keep it simple, man. Like, yeah, small stories to start with. Yeah. I, I it always cracks me up that Peter
1: Jackson goes around telling people that King Kong is his favorite movie. King Kong is a hundred minutes long, right? So, if you're a filmmaker and King Kong is your favorite movie, 1933 King Kong, you have failed to absorb the number one lesson of King Kong, which is it moves like an express train. Once they get to the island, it's about minutes into the movie there's an action sequence roughly every 65 seconds like you know (laughs) here's another dinosaur oh shit a pterodactyl like something insane happens every 5 minutes and it's not helicopter shots of people walking endlessly in the beautiful mountains of New Zealand which are beautiful but Cooper and Shodzak would have not shot any of that they would have said Let's get to the trolls, man. Let's get to the orcs. Let's get to the Balrogs. Let's keep this exactly. thing going, man. Let's keep this thing flying. So, you know, even <laughs> if you love those movies or hate them, all I can say is he learned nothing from his favorite movie, which is about pacing speed and concision and brevity being the soul of wit. You know, exactly. the one example, uh, you know, of losing control, you know, is that very writery cliche about, you know, the characters take over. That has only happened to me powerfully once, and it was pretty early in my career. Uh, the fourth issue of Twilight Zone, The Shadow, I had scripted it so that The Shadow's captured by American Nazis in the fourth issue, and he escapes because he a young Nazi that he encounters, he puts doubts in his mind, and then as he's escaping, the Nazis block his way, and the young kid who he has turned kills the nazi leader and they escape and the how i had written it is that the he kills the nazi's leader they all turn and kill the kid and the shadow escapes and i needed it to happen in one page because i had two pages to wrap up the entire series i needed two pages to wrap up the entire series and i literally got to the moment after the nazis killed the kid and the shadow said stop the car (laughs) And he got out of the car and picked up a machine gun and killed every goddamn American Nazi he could find and gets back in the car. And the shadow is just like, yeah, sorry about your two page epilogue, man. I had to kill the Nazi. Like <laughs> at a scene where the shadow leaves a murderer unpunished, outnumbered, outgunned. I don't care. <laughs> I'm getting out of the car and shooting a bunch of folks and you can't stop me from doing it. And like I said, I know that's like a pretentious cliche about writing, but if one of those things like that character was more powerful than my desire to have him do what I wanted him to do. The shadow, cannot, the shadow cannot be made to not punish the guilty, <laughs> you know? So stop the car, Shrevy. I typed it and went, no, well, I guess I got to fit the epilogue on one page then there's no, <laughs> no, no, no getting around this. Shadow's not going to let me get around it. But uh, anyway, we should uh, wrap up. Uh, we've, we've, we've passed an hour and, uh, we should return everyone to their regularly scheduled programming. Uh, Don, tell us where people can find you and your Kickstarter starts the, on Friday the 20th. We'll include a link in the. show notes.
2: Cool. So, yeah, so, uh, I'm not a lot of, I don't do a lot of social media. I do the the basics. So I'm on Facebook, Facebook, Don Walker. Uh, my icon is my mug. So look for, look for this, you know, you'll find Mm -hmm. my page um uh instagram don underscore space night super simple it's right there on the link uh and that's it i don't do twitter i don't do anything else sanity that's the same i'd like to stay in my office and draw and write that's all i want to do i don't want to be on social media but here i am because i yeah. have to be totally get it and uh and right Kickstarter starts Friday. oh well, i will be AM. i will be at uh comic-con revolution this oh, yeah. uh, Saturday right. and Sunday, the twenty-first and twenty-second. Great. Uh, again, Sketchy Bugs are going to have um, the 10th anniversary celebration. Most of us are all in the same area. Our Sally, so like the G, eight I rows. Um, we have a uh, art raffle. There'll be 17 art winners of this raffle. We'll have one grand prize winner picked. From the 17 pool of winners. Uh, so if you're, you're going to be in Ontario, come to Comic-Con Revolutions. It's a great show. Um the Sketchy Bugs have cool stuff for you if you want to come by our tables. And that is the
1: Ontario in Southern California. Yes. Do not go, do, do not go to Toronto. go to Canada, yeah. No. To, 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 see, to see the comic book convention. You will be very disappointed. I won't be Unless there. I will go far. And that's the- a <laughs> good place to eat
0: too, Toronto these yeah. days. Yeah. Okay. I you am. Uh, yes. I, am no, I am at Ryland grant on all forms of social media. That's R Y L E N D G R A N T. I always spell it cause it's not a real name. Uh, my parents drunkenly arranged letters and settled me with it. And so now I have to spell it for you. Um, but my comic books, the uh, Ringo Award-winning Aberrance and the four-time Ringo-nominated Banjacks are available in fine comic shops everywhere and via Amazon and Comixology. Uh, Also, my, I guess, latest and greatest, or used to be the latest and greatest, my tokusatsu joint, Suicide Jockeys. Uh, That's available at comic shops also. Um, You should, however, uh, run right over to Kickstarter because as i said at the top of the show uh issue one of Fasheng origins my uh wuxia kung fu epic is available right now uh so go grab that it's uh it is a badass ride so enjoy it awesome. uh bring it to us Avalone.
1: uh i am easily found david dot freelance.com is grandpa's website um grandpa's got a website and that uh that's that forks off to all forms of social media. I also have a luckily a very easily Googleable last name. Uh, my next comic Elvira and Horrorland number one drops on the 25th. Um, if you should be in Rhinebeck, New York on the 28th, I will be signing at mega brain comics in the small town of Rhinebeck, New York. Nice. Cause I'm back there for my 35th college reunion. And, um, yeah, and uh, pick up a copy of Previews in your local comic book shop and tell the owner to order all the stuff with my name on it. Uh go. Byron Harland uh, going to be coming for the next five months, five-issue series. I have a one-shot for Savage Avengers, or Savage Avengers, excuse me. That's David Pepos, Savage David Tales, David. Tales uh, which includes two stories by me, one about Alan Quartermain and one about... Uh, Gulliver of mars because i am your go-to guy for forgotten pop pop culture <laughs> and moribund franchises and uh what else oh and the trade for the the series that came before elvira and horrorland elvira meets vincent price which it is what it sounds like elvira does in fact meet vincent price if that appeals to you that is the comic for you uh that trade drops uh the week of uh, San Diego Comic-Con. I think the day before my birthday, July 26th, which is a nice present for me would be for you to go buy it. Uh, that's it. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Don. Uh, Thank you, guys. For being with us and we'll see you on the next one. For if you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts
0: or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block.
1: For more information, visit PendantAudio.com.
0: Thanks for listening.